your cultural competence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural pitfalls and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters Podcast on International Business. We help you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences, helping you develop your cultural competence. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to the Culture Matters Podcast. We're on episode number 63. We have a, um, a first-timer, that is, a first-timer, somebody will talk about law culture. Her name is Jerry Weber, and Jerry Weber is a U.S. American lawyer, knows about the demands of the legal profession and working with other cultures. She spent the first 18 years of her life viewing the world through her U.S. perspective. Longer periods living in Indonesia, China, the Netherlands, Belgium, and Germany broadened her perspective and sensitized her to other cultures. She combined her background in the law with her experience adapting across cultures and now assists legal professionals to better serve their global clients by designing solutions on specific intercultural issues and moderating the building of intercultural teams. Her mission is to give them tools to negotiate more successfully across cultures. Jerry knows a lot about American law and uh, also a lot about European law or in general. And there's a very nice explanation on what the essential differences are between, between well, a couple of countries like Germany, uh, the Netherlands and Belgium and the United States when it comes to interpreting and how to deal with legal issues and the cultural differences in these legal issues. It's time for this week's guest at the Culture Matters podcast. Here's your host, Chris Smith. Good morning or good afternoon, rather. Jerry, how are you? Hi, Chris. I'm really good. Good to talk to you. Okay, likewise. Yeah, it's been some time. I mean, we have had some communication going back and forth, and it actually took some some time for us to actually get together on this podcast, on this Skype call, which is going to be a podcast. So I'm, uh, yeah. I'm excited that that is uh, finally materializing. But we, I mean, I know somewhat about you, but they, the audience, that is you, dear audience, you don't know who Jerry is. So maybe, Jerry, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you come from, where you are right now, and what would you consider being your cultural frame of reference? Okay, Chris. Well, I'm currently sitting in Frankfurt, Germany. Uh, but as the listeners might be able to tell from my um, pronunciation, how I speak, I'm a U.S. American. Mm-hmm. Born and raised, uh, spent the first 18 years of my life there, uh, became an exchange student, spent a year in Indonesia, um, went as far away from what I knew on earth physically and and in all other ways, and spent an amazing year uh, there, mm-hmm. and came back, studied in the U.S., and then have been, I've been living in Germany, I've lived in the Netherlands, where I believe you come from, I've lived in Belgium, um, I studied in China. And um, I'm a lawyer from training mm-hmm. and um, ended up wanting to use all these cultural experiences um, in my, I, I use them in any event in my legal practice, but um, over the years saw also that, yeah, culture plays a big role in our profession. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I would say my cultural reference, I'm primarily a U.S. American. That's really where I came from. But having lived in Europe for, oh, I would say over 16 years and lived in other places, I definitely have a strong European influence, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I would say the Americans will tell me that for sure. Um, yeah, maybe. And and, and I, I kind of have picked and chosen things from along the way that I like mm-hmm. and adapted them in, in my life. 
Yeah, I think that makes uh, that makes makes perfect sense. Like that, I mean, picking up situations and habits and insights and maybe even language as well from um, from different parts of the world that you that you live in. And you have traveled a lot, and I'm, I never know if I offend Americans. And, and it's, a, it's a it's a it's a slogan I got from from actually another American who lived in Belgium as well. And he called himself okay. a, a um, uh, an enlightened American. So in other words, he, he considered himself an American that had some some exposure to other parts of the world other than this massive country called the United States. Yeah, and of course, ah. I mean, I have to have to uh, cherish the audience that I have because fifty percent comes from the U.S., and mm-hmm. so uh, it's it's not. I'm not trying to offend anyone, but you would actually be uh, an enlightened American to that extent, then. Well, I mean, to the extent that you describe it, I'll I'll take that one. Um, yeah, I mean, we have a huge country, as you know, mm-hmm. and there's so many people who, um, you know, for whatever reason. Um, since we have we have beaches, we have mountains, we have you know very different parts where you can. Mm-hmm move away and live a different life, um, on the one hand, far from maybe where you, where you came from, but yet on the other hand, it's a new experience and you can live life very differently. Yep. You know, I'm come from the middle of the US mm-hmm. and then went to a university on the East Coast and worked in New York for a time. And each of these places was very different from where I originally came from. And yep. since we have that in our own country, maybe the need for some people to leave it it's just not as great. Yeah, that no, um, makes, makes, makes good sense, absolutely. Why would you? I mean, if you have everything close, relatively close by. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And it's easy. But I have to say, um, for whatever reason, you know, all these uh, experiences came my way and I took them. And I'm I love my country where I come from, but I also can never get enough of seeing other places. Mm. Yes. It's it's funny that it's it's one of those. I'm not sure if it's social or or cultural phenomenon within the United States. I've never met any American who originally is from where he's from. It's like (laughs) I mean, you, you get born in one place and you always end up in another place. I've never met an American who actually was born from from Indianapolis and stayed in Indianapolis and and was still was in Indianapolis. Mm, as, as I an can, example. yeah, you haven't met them, but I can tell you, I'm I'm from St. Louis, and mm-hmm. I know a lot of people still there who they may have even gone away to study, maybe, mm-hmm. but then they came back and lived with their families um, because you know life was good there, or it's a place they knew. But it, it, since there's so many of us, and we are very mobile, you yeah. know, especially when it comes to jobs, it's probably unusual to meet. People who've always stayed in one place. Yeah. yeah. Is it? Is yeah. there any particular reason you traveled so much? Was it just seizing an opportunity, or did you want to get out, or were you sick of the, of your own country? <laughs> I mean, what <laughs> was the motivation? That's a fair question. You know, it's funny. Um, I, I got very lucky. Our, my parents, at a very young age, um, had never traveled themselves. Were just very curious, and ended up taking um, my younger brother and myself to Europe um, when we I was about thirteen, mm-hmm. and I just started started studying French. And we came to France and suddenly I realized that this language that I had studied was really useful. You know, it was really, it meant something. Mm-hmm. And it, it just, I don't know, from that moment on, I, I, every opportunity that came my way, I took it. Um, and I haven't stopped doing it. And, you know, it could happen again. You never know. Um, I, I live in Germany now, very happy. But, you know, I can imagine life might take me somewhere else someday. And I'd be open to it. Yeah. So you mentioned a couple of countries like Belgium, Netherlands, Indonesia. Um, yeah. And so what, if I, what did you do there? What, what kept you busy? Sure. Well, my Indonesian, um, uh, when I was there, I was, I took what at the time was a gap year. That was before we actually had this term, at least from the American point of view, no one knew one of those. Um, I applied for a year abroad and was um, sent to um, Jogjakarta, Indonesia and attended a high school there. I had finished my high school in the US, but I kind of did an extra year. Mm-hmm. And um, it was... You were still quite young then. 
Yeah, I was 18. Yeah. I was 18. It was, um, it was something else. And I was the only um, non-Indonesian in my school and clearly looked different from everyone else. They mm-hmm. could tell I was the only foreigner there. And that was a very unique experience to never be able to go anywhere without having people approach me, you know, and know that I wasn't um, native, mm-hmm. um, a big eye opener. Yeah. And um, yeah, after that, I came back to the U.S. to study because I, that's what I knew. And it was, um, you know, I had a place in the university waiting for me. Mm-hmm. And, um, I ended up what I wanted to follow the Chinese, uh, the Indonesian, but, um, there wasn't any course where I was going to university at the time in that. So I decided, um, I'd try Chinese. It was in Asia. I was fascinated by Asia and, um, started studying Mandarin and had an amazing opportunity to go spend a semester in, um, Beijing mm-hmm. in 1989. Yeah. Um, and the air was still somewhat clean. Yeah. Well, relatively speaking, yeah, I've heard it's gotten worse, but it wasn't, it was definitely not as clean as where I came from at the time, um, even then. Um, but that was, I ended up leaving two weeks before the Tiananmen massacre. So I really got to see also there, um, you know, the tensions that were rising in a very different way of living um, than I was accustomed to. And it was, it was a fantastic experience. I um, met a lot of people. It was great for my Mandarin, of course. And, um, very unique. Mm-hmm. And then I came back and um, did my law school in the United States. And and then I met a German um, in law school. Yes, and suddenly I, I found German. myself. Yeah, I met a German. I'm married to a German. Um, oh. I met a German and ended up uh, moving to Germany with him. Mm-hmm. And from there, life took us to we were in the Netherlands for two years. Mm-hmm. That was when our children were born. Um, I didn't work. Um, I did some freelance projects, but didn't work as a lawyer there. Mm-hmm. And we moved back and forth between the U.S. and then back to, uh, we spent seven years in Belgium. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was great. That was also um, uh, both the, in the Netherlands and Belgium, um, both of us found that it wasn't either of our homes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of neat to live in a place that it was it was no one's place. And we had to find our way there. And it was um, very a great place to live as a as a non-Belgian or as a non-Dutch person. We mm-hmm. found them very open, welcoming. Learned some Dutch there. Mm-hmm. Had children in Dutch schools, right. so really, um, yeah, yeah. Our children went to uh, public schools in Belgium, and it it was a really wonderful experience. And all during these times, volunteering, doing some freelancing, working here and there, and um, living really as a local person yeah. and getting to see how life was. Nice. Yeah, excellent. That is yeah. that is a super enlightened American, then I would say. Um, probably more sometimes than I'd like to be, but mm-hmm. you know, in the end, it's been a good thing for me. Yeah, and for your kids as well. This is something oh, they, sure. they, they will they will they will carry with them for the rest of their lives, of course. Yeah. Yeah, as you can imagine, we're 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 watching the European Cup right now, and you know, we have a family that you know we they root for Germany, but also for Belgium because they both. Uh, have strong connections to that country. Yes, so, yes, yeah. true, true, true. And, for, and for those of you listening and wondering, European Cup, what European Cup? We're, we're recording this at the end of June, and um, you'll be listening to this. First, it comes online beginning of September, so you know that there's a bit of a time gap in between. And currently, indeed, the Belgians are doing uh, pretty well in uh, in the in the world uh, well, the European Cup, and it's called football. We call it football. <laughs> Never mind what you think soccer is. We call it football. <laughs> Because football, yeah. you play with your foot and not with your hands. Anyways. Uh, good point. <laughs> it's not about football. It's about you and what you do. And typically um, focusing on the business stuff as well. You um, studied law. You're a lawyer. Right. 
Right. Um, and you said, well, you were using your cultural experience and uh, reference, etc., in com- combination with your uh, your legal background, your your academic background, to mm-hmm. help organizations, etc., when they are facing cultural differences. Why do you think you? Why do companies? organizations, maybe people within organizations, of course, brush over culture so easily and so fast. At least that's my experience. Um, I completely agree with you. It's hard to say why. Um, I just observed when I was you know, working in law firms, uh-huh. um, which have been, I mean, I can say law firms have been working over borders for 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 decades. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not, um, globalization has only made that happen even more, but it's it's been the case for many, many, many years. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, yeah, people are talking about, at least in my profession, learning, you know, you have to know, of course, the laws of your jurisdiction that, you, that you're that um, you um, licensed in. You know, you need to understand maybe the laws of other places where your clients are going to you're advise them. You're talking internally you know. in the U.S. now. I, well, yeah, either either in the U.S. I mean, even I worked in a, um, the US, a U.S. office of a, a, or the German office of a U.S. firm. Okay. And so I was working in Germany um, and we were advising either German clients going towards the United States, so mm-hmm. inbound to the US, and also, of course, American clients coming into Germany. Um, I didn't advise them on German law, okay? I had mm-hmm. German colleagues doing that. Mm-hmm. But what, what one often saw during the process was um, there was a lot of misunderstanding on the side, uh, really for clients, d- no matter which direction they were going, um, they're used to their system. And the minute, um, for example, a contract uh, written in the United States tends to be um, a thicker document um, because we don't have a civil code. In in Europe, you have a code and it's all written down. And um, so you don't need to include all this kind of language in your in your contracts because it's automatically part of the contract because it's in your in your in your laws. Mm-hmm. In the United States, that works very differently. We have to actually write in things if we want them to apply. And so you get thicker documents and the, you know, American clients would think, well, that's only 10 pages. They couldn't possibly be, you know, taking care of me. I, I'm sure I'm not protected and there are too many risks that are not talked about in this document. And that's really cultural in a way, explaining to them that these differences exist and that you can actually trust this other way of doing it. You know, and do, it, it and will do, get they, you do they trust them? Um, I mean, if you say so? They, it depends. And that was a big challenge I saw. And this is part of why I, I got into wanting to advise lawyers about this, because I saw that clients often were not convinced or they were very insecure about it. And um, that one needs to develop a bit of trust with them, not just about, I mean, of course, they're going to pick an advisor that they think is good, mm-hmm. but that the advisor might need to spend a bit more time um, talking to this client, giving them some of the background about this is how we do things here. Um, this is how our legal system is structured and how it works so that they have the underpinnings to understand that as we go forward, you know, and maybe negotiate an agreement. It may not look like what you're used to, but I promise you, I understand your concerns and we're going to make sure that it's covered in our system. Um, and that, that hasn't, that's not, we're not trained to do that in our education. Yeah. That's really something that has to happen as we actually start to work. That's when we get trained on, I would say the soft skills and the more practical side of being a lawyer. And, 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 and when you say that you're not being trained on that, is that then you're not being trained from the American ex- uh, perspective? Well, I would say in the U.S. legal, I mean, when you t- study law in the United States, mm-hmm. but I've also, I um, teach at the university here in Frankfurt, you, it's, it's no different. Um, the le- legal education doesn't really talk about um, how do I advise a client from another culture? Mm-hmm. You know, it talks about 
what are the laws in my culture and my system and how do they work? Yeah. And how do I put things together to, um, you know, uh, to comply with this law? Mm-hmm. Or how do I advise someone, um, given that the law is this, how do I give them advice about how to act or what to do in a certain situation? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really take into account the fact that, of course, many of your clients might actually come from a completely different legal background mm-hmm. and yeah. have a different culture, a different way of negotiating, a different way of, um, you know, how they approach um, a legal problem. Can, can you give an example, like a, something, a story that happened without, without disclosing any, any relevant or um, relevant information, but not specific information? Um, well, I mean, I can, I can tell you one thing. It, it's not uncommon um, that a European country, a company, for example, will um, look to raise money, you know, equity mm-hmm. in the United States, on the stock market in the United States. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole regulatory system in place in the U.S., mm-hmm. you know, under the R Securities and Exchange Commission, when you want to file documents to actually sell stock on the, the New York Stock Exchange, it's a very long process of disclosure. There's a lot of information that has to be gathered. Yeah. And, um, of course, you have to do um, disclosure here in Europe. Um, it's not even a question. In, in, in all big jurisdictions, of course you do. But um, over the years, the, the, the amount and the way it's been done has always varied. And so you really have to... Um, spend time talking. And I've, we've had situations where, you know, you're asking a client for information, which they really don't want to give you because in their system, it's not normal to have to give that kind of information. And, um, we had to say to them, you know, we have to really tell you in the U S this is, um, actually failure to give this properly Mm -hmm. can result in criminal sanctions. I mean, this is not just a matter of, of losing money. Um, I think people know that you know, for example, tax problems in the U.S., you can go to prison mm-hmm. and it doesn't happen irregularly. It happens more than you think. Mm-hmm. Um, and in other jurisdictions, you might have to pay a fine or get a slap on the hand. But the chance of going to prison is very, very slim. And so, you know, you have to know these kind of things when you talk to people about why we need to, I, we do need this information. I, I would say the Volkswagen thing that's been going on with their emissions um, yeah. scandal would be another example where, you know, they, they didn't disclose this information. They knew it and they were asked about it and they kept not telling it. Mm. And in our system, that is, um, they punish you a lot. Mm. And also during the legal, um, the legal disputes, you know, there, there are a lot of suits being filed against um, Volkswagen. And you'll see that in the U S system, we have a very, um, wide ability to look into your documentation to prove maybe that you, Newt, that you did something intentionally. You know, we can ask to for your records, your email records, and your phone records, and all these things. And so, that's not always allowed to the same extent in other jurisdictions. And that's where people get into trouble. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I'm listening. I'm just. Um, it's. Uh, it's. It's fascinating. It's good. You're the first lawyer on the show on the um, the 60 plus episodes that we um, that I've made so far. Okay. I find, find it very interesting to actually have this perspective as well. Now, I, I believe with culture, you can say uh, this is better than that. Which system is better, this or that? So I'm not going to ask you that question. Possibly maybe you can answer which question, which system is easier or does that also depend on your background? I, I guess I just <laughs> answered my own yeah. question here. Yeah, well, there's a famous thing and um, any of the people have taken my, my course at uh, the university here with that I teach together with another uh, professor. Mm-hmm. Um, we say always in the U.S. Um, system, it depends. You know, it, there's always 
Um, we have to look at the facts mm-hmm. of the particular situation. And what I would say is when I, when I, as I've learned over the years about the civil and common law systems, you know what, in the end, they often get to the same place, actually. So you can't really say that one's better or worse. One has certain advantages. Um, in the civil law system, you know, you have a very clear code. It's all clearly lined up what the law is and what it isn't. That's mm-hmm. very easy for anyone to find out. Um, in our system, because it's case law, um, it's not as easy for the common person to always ascertain uh, what they are allowed to do and not allowed to do. So it's a bit less transparent unless you have legal knowledge. Mm. On the other hand, it's a lot more flexible because um, if there's no law written about a particular issue, you might be able to um, argue in a court that the court should see it your way. Mm -hmm. And that can happen where in in the European, for example, in the European civil system, um, there's a lot less flexibility about what courts may do because your laws are very clear. So, they both have their upsides and downsides, and in the end, um, they all work for their for their participants. Yes, that's true. That's what I always say as well. Yeah, yeah we're on the same page um, when that's concerned, at least. Is, would you agree with me that in the United States, being a lawyer is the most hated profession? <laughs> I hope not, but you know, I know, um, you know, yeah, there are a lot of there are a lot of jokes about it, and there are a lot of comments. I, I you know. I know a lot of nice lawyers out there, but I'm sure that for every nice one I know, someone has had a bad experience, I mean, and it's yeah. unfortunate. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm not, not, not talking about the person as such, but but the the, yeah. the the profession as a lawyer. It's it's always lurking around the corner in a way. I mean, yeah, you have these silly stories, these urban legend stories about um, what is it? Hot coffee spilling on somebody's milk and then McDonald's uh, on, on somebody's lap and then McDonald's being sued for millions for and millions and millions. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a fair one. But it's funny that you bring that one up because um, if you um, if you look into the U.S. tort system, because that was a um, you know, there was a wrong something, a wrongful act. It hurt someone. So it again, wasn't again, the what, what, what was the uh, U.S.? Sorry, the U.S. tort system. So that a tort is a wrongful act committed against someone. So okay. this spilling of coffee, you know, harmed someone, mm-hmm. but it wasn't a criminal act. So it's a tort. Mm-hmm. And um, if you look at that's our system is notorious, the U.S. system for very high damages. Right. Yeah. That's what everyone lives in fear of. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, there's something fair to be said about that. But actually, when you look at um, the uh, my knowledge of, of that particular award, actually, is that the. Um, court really looked at, I think the jury asked uh, what McDonald's made um, for um, per cup of coffee over a certain amount of time, because mm-hmm. apparently the person who was burned, um, I think it took a certain amount of time until the uh, emergency services arrived and could treat them. Yeah, it was a, quite a severe burn. And so they basically calculated their punishment based on what McDonald's earns on coffee over a certain amount of time to compensate them for their pain over that time. So funny enough, there actually was a, a, a relevance to something. It wasn't just like, let's take, you know, 25 gazillion dollars and mm-hmm. punish McDonald's. But it does seem like a lot from um, when you, for example, come from a civil law country where this would all be set forth statutorily yeah. about yeah. what it could be. Yeah, yeah. You, would, you would get 30 bucks or something and, and maybe and a, and a new free coffee or so. Exactly. Uh, at least in the <laughs> Netherlands, I think, because we and being a feminine culture, yeah, the Dutch are, are not very uh, into litigation, I guess. Not as much as the, uh, the Americans by far. Is, is the, yeah. the fact that you've traveled so much and lived so, so long abroad, has that changed your, your look, your view or opinion on these kind of matters? Do you th- have you considered? Are you considering now that these things are ridiculous, or do you still say, "Well, this, this, yeah, from this angle, it still makes sense"? Um, I would say, you know, from from my perspective, I mean, de- 
being in all, living in all these places has definitely changed my view in general. But I would say I can really see um, how this works in the U.S. system. And I can also say, you know, when you are um, offering services in the United States and we all know what our system is, mm-hmm. you have to act accordingly. It just you, you've been warned. It's very clear how it works. And so um, I would say anyone in, in business there has to then act accordingly. You know that if, if I do something that's intentionally going to hurt someone, I need to be ready to pay for it. Yeah. Um, and it has kind of a, a policing mechanism in a way. And I sometimes would have to say on the civil side, um, you know, I think that let's say you missed a week of work and this and that. I mean, 30 euros seems a little bit cheap for the fact that, you know, they purposely make their coffee hot. Of mm-hmm. course, the idea being that you're going to drive off and drink it in 10 minutes and then it will probably be a temperature that's perfectly lovely and delicious. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. no one wants cold coffee. But there has to be somewhere, um, that, but that you would get 30 euros because it burned you and it was too hot, technically speaking. Mm-hmm. That seems a little bit weak. So like, it depends. It really depends. Mm-hmm. And I, I wouldn't say either one is right or wrong. It, mm. They both work. I think they both work generally very well for their citizens. Yeah. Yeah, the the thing I'm I'm thinking about I'm making a, a bit of a comparison in my in my mind at least with um with the uh, the, the the freedom of of carrying guns in the United States. That uh. is that is I'm not, I'm not going to talk about that per se. I mean that's not in, yeah. unless you have something to say about that that might be of of interest from a cultural perspective of course. I I I can't I can't find anybody in my close surroundings or even far surroundings that that supports the idea that you are that you're legally allowed to carry uh, arms, concealed arms, whatever. Of, of course, I also realize that there is a large group in the United States that is against that as well. But there's a very large and influential group that says, "Well, this is in our constitution, so hence we've got the right, and that's how it's going to stay." Yeah. So it's, it's a tr- yeah. yeah, it's a tricky one. That's yeah. a very tricky one. Yeah, yeah I would say I, I won't. I yeah, I would say I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. Um, Uh, defended on the one hand, but I, I mean, I personally am not a big, um, I don't, I don't own guns and don't really feel comfortable mm-hmm. around them. Um, on the other hand, I do, I do have an understanding, um, for the idea at least that there are many people who own them legally mm-hmm. who really do nothing wrong with them. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that is interesting in our system is the idea that, um, now they're trying to bring in certain restrictions to say that, yep. you know, certain people who maybe have mental health issues or, Um, are on terrorism watch lists that they shouldn't have easy access. I think that seems like a reasonable response, you know, to the situation at hand. I, I hope someday that might change, but you never know. Yeah, yeah. I think the gun lobby is very, very strong in the United States, as we all know. And um, yeah, that, that's right. a hard one. Yeah, indeed. I mean, and I wasn't going to bring that up. I mean, I just, I, it was just in relationship <laughs> to you being abroad so long and possibly having developed a different view on on the American system. And I'm making air quotes here when I say system. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to to litigation, that's is there? Can you sort of shed some light on the fact why that is? Why do, why can or no? Why do individuals? Go for this this uh, I'll sue you option from an American cultural perspective. What what's your take on that? Why we go for suing? Huh. Um, you know, maybe it has something to do with. I mean, we are a very individualistic culture, uh-huh. yeah, and so um, um, we've really always, you know, from from our history, if you go back, we've uh-huh. always been a country where um, people came here from all kinds of places, had to make their own way, really had to fight their own fights, make their own wealth, mm-hmm. you know, find their own way. And I, I maybe that that influences also the decision that I don't expect the state to take care of me. 
I'm going to, you know, go after the problem and try to arrange it in my own way, which would, of course, be through the maybe the legal system is the appropriate way with this particular dispute. Um, maybe that's where it comes from. Okay. Well, I was just curious what, because that's another one of those things that, that I know Europeans look at and wonder, like, why would you do that? So I've even did, did some research myself and asking um, a number, this was just very uh, empirical evidence, quote unquote, again, asked a number of um, of people who worked in a factory, like if you could have a, um, a like a, a small labor accident where, for instance, in a machine, your pinky would have been cut off. Mm-hmm. Would that be worth um, the pinky versus one million that you could get from the company? And the majority said, okay, I'll sacrifice my pinky. That's fine. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, and and I've and only Americans would actually go that direction of the answer. Not a hundred percent, but a lot would, and and none of the non-Americans would actually go that direction. So, oh wow, that's interesting. Actually, you know what? Now that you say that, Chris, I'm going to have to read into that a bit because um, that's that would be fascinating to learn more about. You know what? If, if there's been research done, at least under the psycho- psychology behind kind of that kind of a decision, yeah. and if it's how cultural it is, yeah, yeah possibly, maybe. Um, yeah. <coughs> excuse me. There's a frog in my throat here. Um, no that's all part of it. Um, what would you, you mentioned already um, civil code and common law. Those are mm-hmm. differences, I guess, between the United States, the UK, and then continental Europe. Mm-hmm. But what other possibly maybe more specific, specific um, differences could you indicate between the US and, say, German law or and Belgian law or Dutch law, having named three countries that you've lived in, actually? Yeah, well, I mean, one thing I when when we've been talking about in litigation, so in in the civil law countries, you know, when you file um, a a lawsuit in court, you're going to sue someone for something. Um, The way it works is slightly different. In 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 Europe, uh, my understanding is you have to you know put together a nice um, a pleading or you know a complaint where it it lines up what what happened and some of the the facts that a judge is then going to read. And try to decide if this, ha- if there's a basis, and and then how to rule on it. Um, in the U.S., that's very different. Um, our system, you can the complaint can have a lot less information than one would have in a civil system. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, we once the judge determines in our system, the judge will also determine is there enough at least here to go forward. Then we have what we call a discovery phase, and that allows. Um, both sides to request information from each other. Mm-hmm. They can request it in the in the form of uh, testimony before the trial. And this They're, is American or, or European or German? This is American yeah. right now. Okay. Yes. Um, they can, you know, um, they can actually have you testify under oath about information that is useful to this proceeding. Mm-hmm. They can ask for documents. They can do all kinds of things. And in the civil co- uh, system, so here in Europe, for example, and by the way, the civil system is throughout the world. Um, many many of the South American countries are based on civil law. I know in Asia, many are. Um, so there's many civil law examples. Um, in those countries, um, the uh, the evidence gathering happens in a different way. You can't. I can't just demand that you uh, give me all your emails. Hmm. Here in Germany, for example, the, yeah, the court wouldn't make yeah. you do that. It's protected. It's yeah. private. Yeah. And so the way you get to information is already different. And then also here, of course, in the civil law countries, you have judges. They're professionals. Mm-hmm. That is their job. They are trained to be a judge. 
in the United States, we have many judges who are, depending on what level they're at, mm -hmm. so maybe at the state level, they're actually elected. Mm -hmm. um, they um, serve and are up for re-election. Mm -hmm. So people might look at actually what they do and how they rule, yep. which would be impossible in a civil law country. Yeah. Um, although I would say at, the, at our, our federal courts, um, these are appointments and they are appointed uh, for life. So that's a bit closer to the way you do it here in the civil law system. Mm -hmm. But we also have juries. So when you go um, and have a, a trial, and whether it's a civil or criminal trial in the United States, it's usually a jury that's actually deciding the facts, not a judge. The judge is going to instruct on the underlying law mm -hmm. and what facts a jury would need to find to decide in a certain way for, for a plaintiff or a defendant. Mm -hmm. um, but in the civil system, this generally happens with a judge and only with a judge. Mm -hmm. And that's very different because, of course, um, a jury, these are, um, this is a panel of your peers, you know, appointed from voter registration rules or driver's license uh, information. You know, mm -hmm. they have lists of people living in a jurisdiction and call them out. Mm -hmm. So that's very, very different in our two systems. That's in, it's yeah. interesting. It's very very nice, nice and specific. I like that. That's okay, um, good. <laughs> yeah, that's excellent. No, because I mean, you could you could generally say okay, uh, and even related to to a cultural dimension called uncertainty avoidance, which I think would link strongly to common law if the score on uncertainty avoidance is low, mm -hmm. while the other is true. If uh, countries having a civil code generally have a relatively high score on uncertainty avoidance, in other words, they want to write out of every single law as much and as specific as possible, so there's no it, life becomes more predictable. Uh, right. But that's more much more general, and the way you described it is much more specific, which is excellent. So definitely going to listen back to this podcast again <laughs> and, and broaden my knowledge on the on the topic. As well. Great. Yeah. Great. Um, I have a couple of more questions left because we are uh, 30 minutes plus in the uh, in, in the podcast already. Can you indicate one or two or three the biggest mistakes or the most often made mistakes that companies make in, in your profession, in, in the work that you do in, in, in your consulting uh, and coaching of organizations when it comes to legal, the legal stuff that they miss, they just don't realize well, one thing I would say from my own experience when I was uh, working as a lawyer, um, I think that people um, underestimate as lawyers uh, their clients' um, need for information sometimes, you know, um, in the sense that, you know, we should never assume, even though we may, may have very sophisticated clients, mm -hmm. um, we should never assume that they understand all the intricacies of our system that we're operating in, yeah? Mm -hmm. um, and while I don't want to give every client a lecture for 25, you know, minutes about, yeah. I don't know, some fine point of law that they don't find interesting, I at least need to make sure that I give them, you know, the main points to say here in, uh, you know, in, in the Netherlands, we, there's a couple of things you need to know and we do it this way. And so given that, here's the situation you find yourself in and now let's analyze what we would advise you, you know, but giving them some underlying um, information about the law per se in that mm -hmm. jurisdiction so that the clients from somewhere else at least have a context in which to understand the advice they're about to be given. Mm. Um, that's one thing definitely that happens. The other interesting thing from talking also to a lot of lawyers around the world is um, negotiation style. You know, when you go into negotiation, um, what often happens, people need to really understand um, when they have a client from another culture, uh, what 
what authority does the particular person sitting at the table have? You know, mm-hmm. some some cultures, of course, are um, they need to go back to the parent company and have big discussions before they can actually give the go ahead in a negotiation. Yep. And you need to know that before you sit down at the table yeah. and, you know, make an agreement and think uh, you're you know, look at your client and say, OK, it's time to shake hands now. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of looking at you thinking, um, whoa, you know, I, I, can't, I, I can't do this. But of course, they they're not going to say this out loud. So these are um, things that it's also very useful maybe to spend a little time ahead understanding um, I'm representing this client and, and what's their capacity in the organization that they come from to make decisions and how do I help them um, get through this process in a way that's comfortable for them, mm-hmm. that gets them the results that they want. Um, that's something that people don't always spend time on. Yeah. Makes good sense. Yeah. It's a it, it's a bit of overlap, possibly maybe with my um, one but last question, the question I warned warned you for in the beginning. <laughs> can yeah. you give us Can you give us three tips to become more culturally competent? And maybe you've you've said it already, but if if you have, we'll we'll just take these. But if you have three more tips, then by all means. Oh, I think I can. I mean, I would say one of the most important things is not to assume. Um, don't assume that other people uh, know what you mean or what you think or how it should be. Um, we say in, in, at least in American English, and I hope this is not too impolite, but you know, the word assume, rewrite A S S U M E. And when we assume, we say you, when you assume you make an ass out of you and me, the risk of making someone look bad by assuming that they know something or assuming that they want something is I think in general, not a great idea, but on a cultural level, definitely a bad idea. You know, ask people, give them, don't assume, um, would be my first thing. Okay. Uh, my second one would be to listen, really listen to what people are saying, but also to what they are not saying. Um, that often tells us a lot more than um, we knew. And it might tell us something we really need to know by, you know, if I'm not hearing a reaction on something, there might be something going on and I might need to dig a little bit deeper um, by listening. How, how can you listen? How, how can you hear what you're not hearing? Well, I mean, when you when you... Um, when you're having a, a dialogue with someone and you're asking them questions, let's say on a particular topic and you're asking them for feedback and it's not coming, mm-hmm. yeah, um, you know, number one, don't assume that they didn't hear you. But number two, and don't assume they don't uh, have anything to say. You might want to say, um, you know, I've asked you about this and I've realized we haven't heard anything back. I'm asking you this because I need to know it for these reasons. Um, is that something that's not important in your culture? Is that something that, um, do you need to get more information because that's no problem? You know, you kind of have to open the door for why they might not be answering that question okay. to you. Yeah, good point. Thank you. Okay. And number three? Um, be open. Be open to whatever's coming um, and, and try not to judge it. Just um, people do things different ways and you can sometimes find some wonderful new things um, out there about how to approach something, how to experience something. So be open to it. Yes. Don't assume, really listen, listen for the stuff that's not being said and be open and, and don't judge. They're all very good. They're all common sense, but common practice is the big question mark. Yeah, of course. Yes, yeah. exactly. Jerry, it's been a, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, giving uh, giving us this angle again of, of culture and, and also knowing that within the legal profession, culture matters as well. If people do want to get in touch with you, what is the best way that they can do that? Um, Chris, they can send me an email. Um, maybe you'll put that in your show notes, info at culturalcrossing.com. And I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, 
So and Zing, which is uh, very popular in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a great way to find me. Okay, I'll put that in the show notes as well. Again, thank you very much, and I'm pretty sure we'll bump into each other in the future. Thanks, Sly, Chris. I look forward to it. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks, Jerry. It was a new light that I hadn't seen when it comes to culture and cultural differences. Uh, And I'm very happy that uh, you actually were able to shine some light on this topic as well. This is the end of episode number, what is it again, 63. Thanks for listening. I know that you can listen to other podcasts as well. And instead, you've chosen to listen to this one. So very grateful that you did. I'll be back next week, no, two weeks after that, with a new guest, and that will be a conversation about expatriation. Haven't had that either. Take care, and again, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode. The Culture Matters Podcast, helping you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences.